0: And welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and chavruta, Yerdana Ozband, our daf of the day. Masachet Yevamot. Daf Kuf Kaf Bet, page 122. It is the last daf of Masachet Yevamot. I know for many of us it has been a long, long masachet uh, not just because of the number of pages. Um, I want to just remind everybody because the our siyum is in a couple of days. Sunday, right? We're finishing now. It's Thursday. Um, the siyum is at 5 p.m. Israel time, 10 a.m. Eastern seaboard of the United States time. Uh, the rest of you all over the world can adjust your clocks accordingly, your time zones. Uh, we look forward to hearing from many of you. We have a, a guest speaker who has been preparing some wonderful material for us, Rachel Stomel from the Center for Women's Justice. and And I think it's an opportunity for us to all kind of come together and uh share a lot about uh, whatever's been going on now well, in this past process masekha.
1: maybe it's the word process process, process thank <laughs> you that's <Process, laughs> the experience of yevamot
0: yeah. exactly but <laughs> but i we I,
1: should have started this earlier in the masakhad but anyhow
0: but i i think there's something to be said for this that that it's an opportunity you know people have a lot of reactions i know some people have had a hard time making it through yevamot and i want to also just encourage you if obviously if you're listening to this the odds are that you're going to join us for tomorrow but if you have friends who have kind of taken a, their leave because of Yevamot, uh, we'd like to encourage everybody to rejoin us for Ketubot, which is some very interesting, somewhat challenging material, but in a really different way than Yevamot. Uh, it doesn't have charts in the same kind of way, if nothing else. Um, okay, we have here uh, this final daf. It should not surprise us, given how the masachet has been built. It has a number of Mishnayot on one daf. I'm going to take one, your Daniel, you'll take the next, I'll take the next, your Daniel, you'll finish up. Um, so we have a discussion still about witnesses, right? Where witnesses can testify about an individual, a person who has died, even if what they've seen is the body by candlelight, or, or by moonlight, meaning you don't have to do your uh, testifying only based on the brightest light of the day. And the court can allow a person, the woman, the widow, to marry based on, and now this is going to, you know, this is like wings are going to sprout kind of statement. The The court will allow the widow to marry, a widow to marry, even on the basis of a bat call, a heavenly voice, a disembodied voice that comes out and says, Thus and such a man has died. Now, that's an interesting statement for the Mishnah to make, because the Mishnah is usually, you know, strict halacha. This, I suppose, is strict halacha, but the question is, how often are we subject to a bat call coming to make the death announcement? <laughs> So it happened, so this is an actual incident, and it's an actual incident in a Mishnah, and we've to before, on rare occasion, that this is not the most common kind of thing to appear in a Mishnah, where so-and-so, right, was stood at the top of a mountain, and what does he say? So-and-so, the son of so-and-so, Plony bin Plony, from so, thus and such a place, died, and then they went, ha adam, and they went to this, place on the mountain and nobody was there but they let his wife marry now this to me is a little bit less of a batkol story than the assumption that you know somebody is making a big pronouncement because they don't know how to find any of the people who are connected to the person who has died and then they carry on their merry way but this is me giving backstory the mission isn't any more explicit than what we've just seen And there was another event that took place in Salmon. Salmon is a city in the Galil. I mean, then. And uh, uh, and in this case, the the man himself, who is on the verge of death, makes this announcement. I am so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. I've been bitten by a snake and I am dying. And when they went and they found him, meaning they found the body. They couldn't recognize him, And but they went ahead and allowed the wife to marry because of what he said and identifying himself at that time. It's interesting to me that there's no concern that he might just be, you know, lying on the basis of, I don't know, to, to allow this woman to go free, let's say, for example. I imagine, again, we could come up with some kind of so about police procedural where somebody would take advantage of this kind of, quote, kind of ruling. On the other hand, there's good reason to accept that if this kind of information comes your way by hook or by crook, right, meaning assuming that this is um, an unusual circumstance and yet an a, an announcement of death comes this way to, to the public, then it's reasonable to, to accept it because because why else would it be there? Again, I understand that we could come up with a more crooked kind of version. In fact, the Gemara does recognize this possibility, which is worth noting. It's not just me now speculating about the ancient world. Even then, they realize that this is, and we've seen this throughout the Masachat that there's a possibility of falsehood. That's the whole point. But for the most part, it makes sense to me that this would um, really be um, a straightforward case of testimony, Even though it's unusual. And I would say that Batkol here is kind of a a phrase, a catchphrase, an umbrella phrase. And they don't really mean Batkol, that heavenly voice that we've discussed and that comes up in the Da'bim of the Gemara now and again. Um, Okay,
1: yes, there's always that Batkol. Um, Okay, now we're going to move on to this Mishnah with Rabbi Akiva. I'm a Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Akiva went to Babel to help intercalculate the year. Apparently, there were uh, Naharda was known for its uh, astronomers, and that apparently was the place to go. So he found the Chama of Beitzli, Amarlini said to him, So he said he heard that the Chachamim in Eretz Yisrael do not allow a woman to remarry based on the testimony of a single witness, except for Yehuda ben Baba. The new Metilo, and I told him, right? had and he said, Yep, this is this is so. Amarli, he said to me, So he said, Tell the chachamim in my name, that the country, meaning Bavel, has a lot of army troops. And I received this tradition, right? So, sorry, the piece of the troops is that he couldn't travel because of this. And so he says is that, but I got this tradition from Rav Gamleel the elder. Often when we talk about the Rav in and Rabbi Akiva's time is Rav, Rav the second? This is Rav Gamleel uh, the elder, who is still alive at the end of the second Beit Amidash that a court does allow a woman to remarry in the basis of a single witness. So Rabbi Akiva says, I came back. And I told Rabbi Gamliel, right, that, you know, this man was quoting this in the name of his grandfather, Samach Samachl he was happy. Ben Baba. And so we said, we found somebody who agrees with Rabbi Yehuda ben Baba, right? So that basically, this opinion, this lenient opinion of Rabbi Gamliel, uh, the first, Rabbi Gamliel Azakin and Rabbi Yehuda ben Baba, had already gotten into Baba, and therefore, you know, we could rely on it. So it's also interesting to see this because Rav Gamliel II was known to sort of be a little bit forceful with his opinions, and it's interesting that he felt until he got this testimony from this person above that this was not something that he could really push, um, and uh, that he sort of wasn't until he heard that maybe this opinion was accepted in other places as well that he couldn't do this. Mitocha davar harugim betel Azaria. So Rav Gamliel remembered uh, that. So because of this, Rav Gamliel remembered that there were people who were murdered in Tel Ar- Arza. Um, the and Rav Gamliel basically did allow that their wives could marry on the basis of what witness, because of you know this testimony that Rabbi Ya'kiva came back with. the Right, and from then on, they allowed women to remarry based on sort of hearsay testimony. In other words, someone could come and say, "I heard so and so say that this person died." Me pi eved from a slave, me pi yisha from a woman, me pi shibchab from a slave woman. Rabbi Eliezer the Rabbi Yeshua Omreim. So Rabbi Eliezer Rabbi Yeshua said, "Ein masin pi They were like, "No, no, we don't do this." Rabbi Akiva Omer, lo al pi the lo al pi and Rabbi Akiva also said that we don't allow this based on the testimony of a woman, a slave, or a maidservant. So in other words, you would allow a man to do it or any close relatives. The Gemara then gets into a discussion about whether or not this is really Rabbi Akiva's opinion. But I think what we see from this Mishnah is that Tanayim really struggled with this issue, whether or not
0: this is something
1: that they really should allow or not allow. Um, and I will refer back to this when we get to the end of the Masachar itself.
0: Okay. Um, yeah, I think that this is, you'll note, anybody who's following along um, on the pages or has already learned this stuff, you'll note that the Gamari here is very, very short, right? This Mishnah kind of says what it needs to say, except for the bigger discussion that I think, you know, that we could talk about for a long time in terms of, the ta- what's going on here from the perspective of the Tanayim. Okay, you have another Mishnah. Amrulo, they're saying to Rabbi Kiva, right? Ma- um, and the whole issue here is again: Are we relying upon a woman's testimony? So, another—it's like this Mishnah kind of really flows from the previous one, right? Um, they there were Levim and they went to a place called Tsoar. Ira it's a city of date palms. And somebody became sick, meaning one of these Leviim became sick. They took him to the inn there. And then they went out, you know, they went out and they did whatever they did. They come back and they say to the innkeeper, who happens to be female, Where is our friend? No mate lahem, mate he died, and I buried him. Now, to be clear, the implication is not that they went out for another 20 minutes and then came back, right? They continued whatever they were doing on their travels, and they it must have been a good amount of time, right? And the court allowed his wife to remarry. And now the question is, you know, how is it that they're... um. Why? How is it that the person who um, is testifying here, how is it that this woman is considered credible? Meaning, why isn't any woman going to be credible? Why is this even a discussion? Amar <inaudible> l'ahu, so Rabbi Kiva says to them, <inaudible> Once we've got a woman who's going to be an effective pundakayit, uh, an innkeeper, then she's going to be considered credible, reliable. And in this particular issue, this particular story, the innkeeper brought them out, his staff and his bag and the Sefer Torah, a Torah scroll that he had with him, meaning, here's all his stuff. I've buried him and here's all his stuff. I'm giving it over to you. Right. She she's not a thief. Right. I, I don't know what she would have done with the Sefer Torah exactly, right? Or the rest of his stuff, but we can again we can imagine the more crooked version where there's less uh less validation of her claim. Um the Gemara here and the Gemara continues for a bit, but the Gemara does want to understand why is it that this is even a discussion over this Punjakait about this innkeeper. Why is she any why is there a question about her being credible as compared to anybody else? We've talked about women's given test giving testimony in this kind of issue for, for many, many Dapim. And the Gemara concludes that she was a na- non-Jewish innkeeper. And therefore her credibility is already at a lower level of a threshold in this, again, not PC, but this is the standard here. Um, and because she speaks kind of so naturally, the Gemara says, well, then that, that that's part of what le- le- lends credence to what she's saying. And likewise, the fact that she brings his stuff afterwards, right? She hasn't given it either.
1: No, not at all. Um, I mean, again, I think it's interesting that the masachet is ending on sort of like real life stories. Like we've discussed all the halakha, and now it basically just wants to give us a lot of stories. And that's basically what the Gemara does here following as well you know, it is just going to give us like actual real life incidences. So uh, just to fit, you know, we're going to finish the masachet itself. And, you know, Anne, as you and I discussed, it sort of ends on a non sequitur, but really, and it's and it is a little bit of a, a, a famous teaching. We say this uh, every week in Shul on Shabbat, uh, part of this, right? I'm a Rabbi Elezar, I'm a Rabbi Hanina. Um, so Rabbi Elezar says in the name of Rabbi Hanina, Decha Chachamim Marbim Shalom Ba'olam. Right, Torah scholars increase uh, peace in the world, right? All your children, this is a quoting of passage from Yishayahu, chapter 54, verse 13, that all your children shall be taught uh, of Hashem and great shall be the peace of your children, right? That's similar that's similar to, you know, what we say on Shabbat about Bonaich versus Bonaich. Um, if you know what I'm talking about, look it up at the end of the Siddur in Shabbat, but I, I think it ends on this note because this is a very, very difficult massacre. And in a way, this is sort of Chazal's acknowledgement. I think that the material here is not particularly pleasant. They recognize that they're really dealing with people's real lives and real situations, whether it's yibum, whether it's you know, the marriage of a minor because of economic reasons, whether it's a young girl who has to refuse that marriage, Uh, whether it is whether or not we can allow a woman to remarry whose husband disappeared. And I think this statement of uh, Rabbi Eleazar is basically saying like, you know, you have to make sure that really what is motivating you or what is leading you when you're making these decisions is is something that's actually supposed to bring peace into this world. I, I read it as sort of like a directive. I guess if you're cynical, you could read it as, don't worry, whatever we decide, it really is the Shalom way. But I I, I, I want to not end it so cynically. And I think he's really trying to give a directive like these are really, really heavy matters and issues. And like Hazal, you really have a responsibility here.
0: So I want to note two things. Um, one is that the whole idea of Yibum, right, is about having the children that are going to be you know, the original basic case of Yibum, the children that will be in the the heirs or in the name of the dead brother, right? And I think that idea of the the marriage from that man, right, the Avam, is truly about bringing peace into this world because he's he has to kind of move him his own self over for the sake of the brother, for the sake of the children that won't even be credited to his account, as it were. Right, so uh, in in that way, I think this idea of the the children in the context of of Masachet Yavamot are have a a new cast or a new uh, light shining on them uh, specifically in this context. Why is it important to say specifically in this context? Because interestingly, there are four Masachot of the entirety of the Talmud that end with this same Rabbi Hanina quote, which I think is really interesting, and they are Brachot, which we saw a long time ago, right? Nazir Yavamot, and uh, Kratu. So so the the recognition that we want to end with a peaceful note, I think, is strong. And then it shows up in, you know, each different context um, lends a slightly different meaning or a different, as I said, different light cast on the on the statement um, in this way. Right, in brachot, when we talked about it, it was in the context of prayer and the context of blessings and the relationship between man and God. And this is a whole different thing, right? This is that you know the legacy of the brother. I think really becomes important here in a way that we would never have thought of when we read the same passage in masach brachot.
1: Well, what one could say is there, it's in the context of the relationship between man and God. Here, it's within the context of the relationship between man and man. Like, how does halacha actually impact? our relationships in a literal sense, like, can a person remarry? Who should that person remarry? And also, like, you know, recognizing in a way that the people who, you know, enforced these halakhot or gave judicial judgment, you know, there's, and I'm using definitely modern terminology here, you know, there's a power differential here. And what do you do with that, you know, power to be the deciser? Is it one that you use to bring Shalom into the world? Or not one to bring Shalom into the world, and that's really the responsibility of those who carry uh, the thought of Halacha into into pra- into the
0: practical realm. I think you have a Hadran here to say.
1: Yes, Hadran alaych Masachet Yevamot. Wow, it's hard to believe that we actually finished this. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Please join us for our CM, which will, God willing, be on July tenth. Thank you to Rabbi e. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadram website. Let us know what you thought about the stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, when we begin Masachik Kadubot, go and learn.